0: You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast that covers developments across all aspects of civil and public law in the United Kingdom. All the comments are current at the time of podcast publication. It's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row, and this edition is presented by Rosalind English. The Court of Protection deals in general with cases where the person concerned lacks capacity under the Mental Health Act. This covers a multitude of affairs, from decision-making regarding education, health and welfare, to the management of that person's property. Often the property in question is a large sum of money, running into millions, that the protected person has won by way of damages for the accident or injury that has rendered them incapacitous in the first place. I have with me Amelia Walker of One Crown Office Row, who will explain some of the intricacies of the setup. Amelia, welcome to LawPod UK.
1: Thank you, Rosalind.
0: Can you guide us through the Court of Protection's powers to make a deputyship order?
1: Absolutely. The Court of Protection has various powers to make its own decisions in respect of both a person's property and affairs, and also their personal welfare decisions. Property and affairs will cover things from paying the person's bill up to selling their property, discharging them from a tenancy, from a lease, settling any money as gifts on individuals. And personal welfare decisions will cover the care that they should receive, the residence, where they should live. And in the context of the cases that I frequently do, that will involve decisions in respect of care homes, placements, and it will also involve decisions in respect of treatments so medical treatment. Now, the Court of Protection can appoint a deputy to make a certain number of those decisions in respect of either property and affairs or personal welfare. The deputy can't make all the decisions that the court will make, so there is a limit on that. The deputy in a personal welfare case Can't make a decision that someone will not see someone, that they will be barred from having contact with another individual or a particular individual. They can't make a decision about end of life or ending end of life treatment or life sustaining treatment. And they also can't make a decision about the transfer of responsibility for health. So, where one person or body is responsible for making a healthcare decision, they can't make the decision that the responsibility will pass to another body. So those sorts of decisions will always have to go back to the Court of Protection. Similarly, in respect of the property and affairs decisions, a deputy can't settle property for the benefit of others. They can't exercise a will. And they can't exercise any power which would be vested in the protected party, who we call P, whether beneficially as a trustee or otherwise. So there is a restriction on what a deputy can do.
0: It would be helpful, Amelia, if you could just give us an idea of the terms of this general order of deputyship.
1: The term of the general authority will say something like the court confers general authority on the deputy to take possession or control of the property and affairs of P, and the name will obviously be included, and to exercise the same powers of management and investment, including letting property, as she has as beneficial owner subject to the terms and conditions set out in this order. And there then may be further wording in the standard order. And then there can also be express provisions in the order as to what the individual can do with the property. And in particular, and I know we're going to come and talk to this in the context of the ACC case, whether or not the deputy can enter into any litigation on behalf of P.
0: You mentioned the case of ACC. This was a ruling by Hilda J in the joint cases of ACC, JDJ, HPP at the beginning of the year. And it involved this precise question of where the deputy has obvious powers under the order for conveyancing and property matters and so on, and where it shades into litigation and where the deputy should ask for the authority of the court. Could you give us the background to this case or these joint cases? The
1: decision of Senior Judge Hilda is interesting as almost a one-stop shop, and actually that wording appears in the judgment, for various different points. In fact, I would say almost all points that need to be considered when you're looking at the court's power to appoint a deputy. And I should just say the court can appoint, and this does become important later on in the judgment, can appoint a property and affairs deputy, could appoint a separate personal and welfare deputy, could appoint one person to be both could appoint two people jointly and severally. So there are various different iterations and permutations of how the deputy system works. As I said, the ACC case is a go-to in terms of a summary of all the different things in many ways that you need to look at when you're considering deputyship. And the starting point is really the extent to which a general authorisation, and that's pretty much the wording that I just referred to, it can cover things like litigation and conducting litigation. So it's really about the extent of the general authorisation. And it also deals with the terms on which and the circumstances in which a deputy needs to go to the court to have express authorisation to do something. So the court needs to step in and make a decision and give the deputy authorization to do something. And in the cases of all three cases, they were looking at retrospective authorization because in each of the cases, what the deputy had done by then was outside of the terms of what was specifically authorized and what was in the wording. And there were three different cases, as you alluded to. So there was ACC. And in that case, a property and affairs deputy had general authority of powers of management, but no express provision to grant authority to instruct solicitors or conduct any kind of proceedings. And this sort of case very much marries up with the cases that I do with my education barrister hat on, because it involved a young person whose education and healthcare plan had been discontinued when they were 19, which does frequently happen because at that stage, young people will be coming out of educational training at that point, and they may be moving into the adult social care sector. And the appointed deputy, which in this case was a law firm, had appointed within their own firm, the team of solicitors who dealt with the education side of things, to pursue an appeal of the local authority's decision to discontinue the education healthcare plan. And They had done that prior to gaining any authorisation from the court. So, as I said, they were going back and trying to get this retrospective authorisation.
0: And the other cases involved very different facts, but the same issue. Is that correct?
1: JDJ was slightly different in that the deputies who were appointed were not within the same law firm that was then being instructed to conduct the litigation. But similar in the sense that the young person was pursuing an appeal against the local authority in respect of his education placement. He hadn't come out of education, he was still 17, so he hadn't got into the period of time where quite frequently local authorities do discontinue an educational healthcare plan. But the family had identified a particular placement that they wanted him to go to. And the local authority was saying, no, they'd identified a different mainstream college, which they were saying that he should attend. And in that case, the deputies applied for authority for costs to be incurred by the Human Rights Public Law Department within the law firm, which is the same law firm which was involved in the ACC case, and urgent authority was sought to liaise with the local authority about funding for the future college placement. And in order to comply with the tribunal deadlines, the public and human rights law team within the law firm had to go ahead and, and advise on and issue the appeal against the local authority's decision prior to that authorisation being given by the court. So again, it's a case of that retrospective appeal HPP is as you say that is very different facts in terms of the fact that HPP was much older he was 50 years old at the date of the ACC judgment which was in February of this year he had sustained a severe brain injury and multiple orthopedic injuries when his bicycle was hit by a lorry litigation was pursued and in that case there was a property and affairs deputy, obviously, because that's common in all of these cases. But there was no express provision in the appointment of the deputy, in the order appointed the deputy, granting or excluding authority to instruct solicitors or conduct any kind of proceedings on his behalf. So that goes back to what I was saying earlier about the fact that this case is very much wrestling across the board with what that general authority can be extended to include. In the HPP case liability had been admitted but Quantum hadn't so obviously proceedings were ongoing in respect of that and there needed to be ongoing instruction of the solicitors involved.
0: I mean in all these cases Amelia the applicants, the deputies were saying well What's wrong with having the expertise of the solicitor's firm to hand, particularly when cases are urgent? It's surely in the protected person, P's best interests, to have another department of the firm dealing with contentious litigation.
1: That was certainly the case in respect of the claims where the solicitors were both acting as the deputy and also instructing a team, as it were, within their own firm. There are a number of issues that are identified in the judgment with that approach. One of them, and probably the main one, is around conflict of interest, because conflict of interest, as various of the judgments say, and and again coming back to the fact that this judgment is very helpful as a summary of lots of the different authorities, and you've got the, the legislation there, but the different authorities on conflict of interest, and what you get very clearly in that is in court protection proceedings there's always going to be some element of conflict of interest because a deputy is being paid to do that job but there is an issue around the conflict of interest there is an issue around whether or not the deputy who is within a law firm then instructing a team within their own law firm is going to ensure that the, basically the best value for money is being obtained And certainly a concern of appearance of conflict of interest, where it might be said that steps are being taken towards litigation, which aren't necessarily advantageous, but are possibly increasing the costs and therefore the revenue coming into the firm. There is another issue around expertise, which has more to do with this separation between property and affairs. Deputy responsibilities and the personal welfare decisions, which is that particularly when you're making an application to the Court of Protection to authorise any decisions or to resolve any matters that are arising, a property and affairs deputy is not necessarily going to be well placed to understand the circumstances in which a personal welfare decision needs to be looked at by the Court of Protection. So it's not necessarily the case that there is going to be that expertise within one firm or one body.
0: Going into these joint cases, in terms of the Court of Protections approach, Hilda J, we do have to ask how far along the path towards conducting litigation does the deputyship authority extend? And once the activity, if you like, becomes closer to contentious litigation, where do you draw the line? This is the difficulty, wasn't it?
1: Yes, absolutely. And that was something that the parties wrestled with and had different submissions on. The applicants who were the deputies were actually all saying that it should go up to the point of advice in terms of property and affairs management that goes up to the point of a letter before claim. And the official solicitor said it should be up to the point of a letter of response because it's only at that point that the court, which is then going to authorise any further steps, will actually know and understand the full scope of the issues. So that's where ultimately the the line was drawn. It's when you get up to the point of a letter of response. The point prior to that, advice and support in starting the process is considered something that can fall within the general authorization. After that, you are conducting litigation. Now, there are some differences because you're going to have different circumstances in which property and affairs deputies are acting. And I've already referred to the education case. I'm going to come back to that the education scenario. You've also got the scenario of continuing healthcare, for example, up until the point when an application for continuing healthcare is refused it doesn't even actually have to say look anything like litigation but you've got advice on pursuing the application you've got advice that you might have and you may very well go to a public lawyer to actually advise on you know, the proper steps to be taken and how the system works because you're that's not necessarily something that's going to fall within a non a legally trained deputies sphere of knowledge but it's something that as i said a public law a lawyer will be in the community care and healthcare setting will be used to dealing with once the application continuing healthcare is refused actually senior judge holder says at that point anything that comes after that in terms of appealing it would be litigation so the letter of appeal that then goes to the nhs continuing healthcare Body would from that point onwards be litigation. In terms of the education healthcare plan and appeals of local authorities' decisions in those respects, what Senior Judge Hilda said is that the criteria are not financial and the decision is not financial, although she accepted that there may be some financial implications. So this is not a property and affairs decision, effectively. So even advice on the merits of an appeal would not be covered within the general authorisation and you would always need to get authorisation. And given the time frame for making an appeal, which from the local authority's decision when they issue an educational healthcare plan, which sets out what the young person or child's needs are, what provision needs to be made for them and what school or further education setting the local authority is saying they should go to, that period is two months. So in fact, it's a very short time frame. But the effect of Senior Judge Hilda's decision is, because this is not a property and affairs matter, you must seek authorisation prior to appointing anyone to act, which is why in both the JDJ case and the ACC case, this matter then came before the court, because they were having to seek retrospective authorisation. It is interesting, that decision, about whether or not this falls within property and affairs, because although Senior Judge Hilda nods to financial implications, she doesn't go on to say, and I can't really find this in the judgment in terms of submissions from other parties, what those financial implications might be. And in fact, they could be very significant and they could impact, it seems to me, on Peas. Property and affairs. If, for example, P has a clinical negligence settlement and that has already been made almost in the expectation or in the expectation that the local authority will fund particular placement or that there could be an appeal, which would then look to the local authority or if successful, the local authority would pay for it. It's conceivable that if an authorisation is not given to instruct solicitors. Actually, the placement costs could come from the clinical negligence settlement. So, a portion of that could be carved out. And it may be that that hasn't already been factored in. Having said that, that would normally be factored in. So, it would normally be a contingency. I'm just interested that that's not something that was really talked about, or even there was no reference to the contingency or no reference to the way in which these clinical negligence settlements are structured. But it seems to me you could say that there is an argument that this is actually property and affairs because of the potential impact on the clinical negligence settlement sum.
0: Amelia, can a deputy also act as a litigation friend?
1: Yes, absolutely they can. And it's not uncommon for deputies to also act as litigation friends. One of the issues that arose in this case was circumstances in which a trust corporation, so... you may very well have a law firm acting as both deputy and litigation friend. And indeed, that certainly had happened in one of the cases. In that case, the named individual, originally named as the litigation friend after some different swaps of litigation friends previously of of people who were known personally to P, left the firm and then there was an appointment of another person, but that's slightly by the by. The applicant said that they didn't see any legal reason why a trust corporation cannot act as a litigation friend and that wasn't actually contentious the issue was their contention that there's no legal reason why a litigation friend could not be authorized to charge for acting as a litigation friend and the official solicitor said the prospect of p paying the litigation friend raised significant concerns and those costs would be additional to the costs of the solicitor who was instructed by the litigation friend, and would be payable from any damages recovered. So that would constitute a possibly very significant carve out of of damages. And going back to the risk of conflict of interest, the official solicitor also emphasised that those concerns are going to be particularly acute, where there's a conditional free agreement that's been entered into, particularly where it would provide for P to be liable for the solicitor's unrecoverable costs. Now ultimately, The official solicitor didn't invite the court to find it was impossible to authorise a litigation to charge for acting in that way, but pointed out, uh, and this was the quote, that the cases in which it's in P's best interest to have a litigation friend who charges, if P can have a litigation friend who does not charge, will be vanishingly remote. The example there is that the official solicitor offers to act as a litigation friend without any charge in the existing cases in which there are particular criteria which are met. So for example P has a lack of capacity to litigate which you would sort of think was actually a necessary or prerequisite in any event. There's no other person willing to act without charging and there is some source of funding to cover the costs of solicitors and counsel for P. So senior judge children didn't need to resolve this issue and to reach a conclusion as to whether or not a litigation friend could charge. But it was enough to do so to say in practical reality it's going to be extremely difficult to satisfy the court either prospectively, which is the ideal scenario of any of these applications for authorisation, or retrospectively to enable that charging to take place.
0: So some of the um, circumstances that you've described are obviously very time-constrained, that somebody has to act quickly, there's urgency in the situation. So how do you get round these cases where the deputy has perhaps gone beyond the bounds of his or her authority because the circumstances required it, and they've done that and they're applying to the court for retrospective authorisation and indeed costs?
1: Yes, absolutely. And the cases I've alluded to, the education cases, as I've said, you've got a very strict time frame. You've got two months in which to make the appeal. And so you do need to act very quickly. And indeed, that two months could quite easily be eaten into or gone into by parents or carers or those who are responsible for a child or young person or assisting them other than in a litigious capacity actually just trying to liaise with the local authority. So you could quite easily find your way down to about six weeks and then you've actually got to put in and lodge the appeal. And there isn't often a a great deal of latitude that's given by the tribunal in those circumstances. Having said that, I'd be quite interested to see, and I haven't had a case yet, where the tribunal might have had to wrestle with a late appeal as a result of an application for authorization going to the Court of Protection first. So I'm going to keep an eye on what the tribunal might do about those sorts of cases. But it does seem that you may be able to get an expedited application for a prospective authorization into the Court of Protection. What Senior Judge Hilda said is that if you are going to have to seek retrospective authorization, then you will have to show the court why it was so urgent that authority couldn't be sought prospectively. And one of the considerations the court will take into account there is the length of time between making urgent application and making the application for retrospective approval. The decision to proceed effectively in breach of the order, which is what the deputy is doing, and the retrospective authorisation is effectively absolving the deputy of liability for breaching the terms of the order. And there is provision for that in the Mental Capacity Act. It is actually expressly provision in respect of attorneys, but it's always assumed to apply also to deputies. So that's just to go back and explain what the retrospective authorisation is actually covering. The deputy will have to show why it's in the best interests or why it was in the best interests. Of P to proceed without gaining authorisation and they're going to proceed on their own costs. So clearly that's something that deputies need to take into account. I would just underline that in the education context, because of what I said earlier about Senior Judge Hilda's determination that this isn't something that is a property and affairs decision, the advice stage is not covered. So any assistance that you might get or the deputy might wish to get from instructing counsel or instructing a law firm, either within their own firm or outside, that is not going to be covered. So it's just to underline, that's obviously very important because quite often the deputy will want to get some advice on what the prospects of the appeal are. Any advice that they do obtain on the prospects of appeal, and that was certainly the case in ACC and JDJ, will be considered by the court when looking at retrospective authorisation. So if they act outside the terms of the order and obtain advice from an education barrister or an education solicitor on the prospects of the appeal, the court will obviously look at that. And if you've got a well-reasoned decision which says you should proceed with appeal and you've got, in one of the cases, 70% prospects of success, even if ultimately the appeal doesn't go in P in the deputy's direction then that will still be something that the court will say, well, we've got a reasoned opinion and it does look in all the circumstances as though it was in the best interests to, first of all, get that advice and then to proceed to lodge the appeal, both of which steps would be outside of the terms of the authorisation. But the fact that they will be proceeding on their own costs is obviously something that will give deputies of whichever kind, either personal individuals or individuals within a trust corporation, a law firm, That will obviously give them some pause for thought.
0: I also understand from Hilda Jay's ruling that there's no hard and fast rule for retrospective authorisation, that each case will be considered on its own merits.
1: That's absolutely right. And she drew from general principles as to what is reasonable, or for example, the, the reasonable gifts that might be made which is one of the things that the property and affairs deputy can do, is make reasonable disbursements or assist people in need who P might otherwise assist, did they have capacity? And there is authority and direction to deputies as to what would be reasonable in those circumstances. And those are the same kind of tests that the Court of Appeal will look at in determining what was reasonable and reasonable steps that that were taken. But absolutely, uh, Senior Judge Hilda said that she couldn't give any general prospective assurances of the outcome. It it will be, as you say, on a case-to-case basis.
0: Amelia, thank you so much for guiding us through this very labyrinthine and technical judgment. But I understand how important it is and that Hilda Jay deals with all sorts of situations where the deputyship order
1: has to be looked at very closely. She does. And there is a summary of her Conclusions, which you'll find unsurprisingly at the end of the judgment. But one thing that did occur to me on reading it was that it might be very helpful to do a flow chart, one of those boxes that sort of say, Are you a property and affairs deputy? Are you within the same law firm as the law firm that you're instructing? What case are you? Is this an education case? And then sort of start following things through. And it might just be because I find it easier to to look at things like mind maps. But it did occur to me reading it that this might be actually quite helpful. Well, this could be
0: your next project in your busy life, drawing up a flowchart.
1: Anyway, thank you so much,
0: Amelia. It was very good to talk to you and hope to see you on LawPod UK again. Thank you. Thank you
1: very much, Rosalind.
0: LawPod UK is presented by Rosalind English and is produced by One Crown Office Row. For more editions of LawPod UK, you can subscribe to the podcast and recommend us to a friend.